Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Professor R. Barton Palmer. Mr. Palmer has written extensively about Kubrick's work, including an essay for Gerald Abrams, The Philosophy of Stanley Kubrick. You know, what What fascinates me about the conversations I've had so far about Kubrick, uh, it, 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 the, the films that seem to be most open to interpretation are The Shining and, and Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, and and I, I guess a good place to start uh, is Kubrick's approach to genre, uh, per, particularly the, the horror film with The Shining. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, if you, if you compare the film to the Stephen King novel, from which it was uh, loosely uh, adapted, uh, the the emphasis on horror uh, per se in the film is uh, much less than in the novel. In mm-hmm. fact, as you probably know, uh, King was extremely unhappy with the Kubrick version, and uh, uh, when he, when he had sold the rights to the book to the uh, production company, he was not a particularly well known writer, and it was uh, somewhat later in his career. I I think it's the end of the 80s. I can't remember exactly. But when he'd become uh, much richer and more powerful, he, he arranged for a miniseries um, version of uh, his book that's much more faithful to the original. And if you see that film, you can see uh, how, much, how much more there is in the way of uh, strict horror in terms of fantasy rather than um, uh, simple simple psychology. There's, um, there's uh, uh, much more evidence of the supernatural, for example. Uh, right. Book novel and in the miniseries. And uh, those are elements that Kubrick has uh, de-emphasized. So uh, th- this is a sort of interesting uh, film because uh, to some degree in, in relation to horror genre, because to some degree it's kind of like the slasher films that uh, came to prominence in the wake of Hitchcock's Psycho, 1960, and which which had a, a long history of popularity through the 80s. Um, but it's but it's very different from the body horror films that followed it quite quickly on the independent scene um, by directors like uh, Toby Hooper and particularly David Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, The Shining is in in many ways connected to the horror genre in some ways thematically, but it's quite different from its literary text, and it's also uh, substantially different from from both the series of horror films that kind of um, uh, surround it in terms of its historical moment, slasher films on the one hand um, and the body horror films on the other. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in many ways, like like many of Kubrick's films, a kind of a kind of unique text 
that's um, unlike anything else being made at the time. Well, that's the sense that I get from his films is that, I mean, he, 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 took, he would take a popular genre, whether it be the war film, the science fiction film, costume drama, and he, he'd see how he could define for himself the, the boundaries of that genre. I think that's a very good comment, and some of the some of the productions are so surprising once you cons- once you once you take into consideration uh, thinking about marketing and uh, the connections of the film to what's going on at the time. Uh, you uh, mentioned the war film, and so uh, brings up immediately uh, Paths of Glory, which is based mm-hmm. on a, a novel somewhat popular by by um. um American writer named Humphrey Cobb, but it's such it's such an unusual film because it deals in in great depth with with issues that are are really entirely French rather than American. The film remains today uh, a kind of uh, a taboo film in France. The French really objected to that film. Mm. It's a very surprising thing for an American director to make a film that winds up being banned in France because yes. of its engagement with French politics and, and the way in which Kubrick treats the French mutiny uh, at the end of 1916 and beginning of 1917. And there are many people in France on the political right who have sort of never forgiven him for making that film. Interesting thing. So, so yes, you're absolutely right. His, his productions tend to be very individualistic and idiosyncratic turns on genre. And that's, that's true, of course. Dr. Strangelove is another good example. Or you mentioned Eyes Wide Shut earlier. That's uh, you know, going back to a 1920s literary text and mm-hmm. a very different historical moment, a kind of resurrecting it in a way, with, with no real context um, in terms of other films being made. Uh, so that, that, that quality of Kubrick, I think, is uh, certainly something that's there. It, yeah, it's hard for me to define what exactly Eyes Wide Shut is, which which is part of what I love about it. I mean, is it a love story? Is it a thriller? Is it? it, it it's everything. It's kind of unclassifiable in a way. Hard, hard to hard to say what genre it is. It's a sort mm-hmm. of melodrama in ways. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. it's about this strange erotic connection. It's about uh, two people uh, who who are exploring. Uh, their own their own erotic interests in the context of their relationship, uh, but it's but it's also a kind of social commentary, uh, a sort of post sexual revolution commentary, and then and then the way it engages with the off screen life of the two stars, then married to one another, uh, also mm-hmm. another very interesting aspect to that. It, it's it's interesting how you mentioned social commentary because. Um, the horror genre uh, is is particularly suited for subversive social commentary. I find. Yes, uh, yes I think that's do, true. Do you see that in any of that in, in The Shining? Oh yes, I think absolutely. I mean, this is this this is a film that takes a kind of modernist subject, um, a a typical modernist character, the alienated writer, uh, the writer who is. Uh, Searching for time and space to uh, to exercise his gift, and then what Kubrick does is kind of turn that mythology inside out and uh, explore all the all the pathologies that connect to it. 
there's there's such such an emptiness uh, at the at the center of the Jack Torrance character played by Jack Nicholson um, in in the way that that the the solitude and the disconnection that he seeks in order to create all sort of turn in on themselves as the process and he winds up typing pages and pages of the same rant, um, a complaint about the way his his life has gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh and if you compare if you compare the film to the book, uh there is there's much more interest in the in the sort of psychology of this character. It's not something that is expressed particularly uh in terms of uh, dialogue or the relationships the character has, for example, with his wife and son, those are sort of one dimensional at times. But it's it's the whole way that the that the hotel uh becomes an expressive space to mirror, reflect, condition and act as a stage for this psychopathology to work itself out. And um it's it's a film very much like a lot of Kubrick's other films where the with the mise en scène, the setting, and then the uh, photographic treatment that's designed to present that setting in the film are are more important uh, per se than any kind of depth of character. In fact, you might say, uh, actually, I think this is probably a pretty fair statement that uh, Kubrick really doesn't deal in profound, complex, multi-dimensional. Uh, round characters. His characters tend to be very, very two-dimensional, at least in conventional narrative terms. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the film becomes a visual expression of the complexity that you might want to see as part of what involves them, uh, as as opposed to serving simply as a backdrop for a more complex uh, psychological drama. Yeah, he strikes me in his use of characters as as using characters to exhaust whatever ideas he's he's trying to investigate. And you were talking about how it's similar to other Kubrick works. I think of the, I mean, all of his films are are, are so different, and yet they have thematic threads. They're they deal with the duality of man, a, a, a suspicion of of power. Uh, how, how does his his how do his changes from the book reflect uh, his personal obsessions? Do you think? Well, I think I think it's quite it's quite true that uh, this is a film that is is all about creativity and the artist, and that uh, Jack Torrance comes to represent a kind of dark side of the creative process. Uh, in in which the necessary solitude, selfishness, and self-centeredness of the artist uh, turns in on itself and uh, becomes not uh, something that is expressed in some kind of of object that he creates. In other words, Jack is a kind of anti-Kubrick. Kubrick is the figure that turns his obsessions and ideas into art, and, and Jack is... Jack is absolutely blocked from doing that, and so what you get in the film is a sort of nightmare version of of uh, the artist 
And uh, I think it's a film that is in many ways very, uh, very, very self-reflexive in that it uh, uh, takes into account uh, the process of, of creation that generates it and, and depicts the absence of that. So it's a film in which creativity is splashed all over the screen and yet, and yet the main character is someone who's, who's absolutely blocked. It's not, it's not that he has writer's block in the traditional sense is that, is that what he discovers is that there's complete emptiness, uh, in, inside him in terms of uh, what he has to say and, and that, that creates a space for all these other pathologies to connect mm -hmm. the ones that are in the hotel, the ones that are in him. Uh, and his murderous rage is the kind of uh, interesting mixture of forces, internal and external. So I think, I think what you get there is uh, uh, very, very close to a kind of anti-autobiography of, of yeah. the artist uh, destroying himself. Uh, and um, um, very fittingly uh, ending up in a maze from which he is unable to extricate himself mm. and dying, not in some dramatic way, but by freezing to death in a kind of horrific image of, of pointlessness and lack of energy and direction um, that is, is just so appropriate to the way the story has been uh, told by Kubrick from the very beginning. And th this is really what, what, what King didn't like. Uh, didn't like this particular uh, negative twist on uh, the Jack Torrance character, who in the novel is much more uh, controlled by the forces in the hotel um, and is uh, more of a victim than a victimizer. In the book, it does. It, yeah, in the book, it does seem that he is. Um, he's shown that yes, he is capable of of violence. He is battling with demons uh, in terms of his past alcoholism. But I think the point is, he's battling with them. He's he, he he's tr he's trying to be a good father, and and the horror comes in the descent that he experiences in the book. In the right, film, it's much more from outside. Yeah, it's and the, when he goes to the hotel. The the hotel is not a not a um, um, exterior reflection of his interior. It's something that that happens to uh, connect to him in ways that ultimately wind up destroying him. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. quite the same thing, which is typical for Stephen King. Actually, you know, most of his novels feature fairly sympathetic characters who get caught up in in circumstances. Uh, sometimes they're they're supernatural. Sometimes they're they're psychological, but that are in some sense uh, not really their fault. But I, I don't think Kubrick is doing that with this film. Yeah, and this might not be a fair assessment, but it, it, in the book, if I remember correctly, he has a beautiful blonde wife, yeah. um, and they went another way in, in the film. And, and I, I, I don't mean that in a negative way because I think Shelley Duvall gives <clears throat> one of the best performances of that era. I think she's just phenomenal in the film. But do you think yeah. the the choice of casting someone that um, look, that appears frumpier than the book portrayed her 
is a way of expressing uh, – uh, it's almost like Jack's projection of his own failure that he projects onto his family. And that, and that, and that, and that he has someone in, in, in whom he has no interest and, and uh, reduces her quite early on to a, to a kind of pathetic uh, sexual object. You remember at one point calls her the, the old sperm bank. That's his mm-hmm. name for it. And, and that, that kind of misogyny is not in the novel. Uh, mm. That's something that Kubrick adds, and I believe, if I remember correctly, that's one of the things that that King really didn't like was that. I mean, he he didn't he didn't like Kubrick uh, eliminating all the uh, supernatural elements in, in which the um, uh, topiaries uh, take on a life of their own and become monsters and so on. That's mm. all. That's all stuff that Kubrick leaves out. In in pursuit of a greater kind of uh, uh, ambivalent, ambiguous realism uh, mm-hmm. that's full full of unanswered questions. Um, very very different approach. There's also a streak of racism in the film portrayed in the film, and yeah. and yeah. I've spoken with. Uh, Bill Blakemore, who's an ABC News reporter that wrote a pretty influential article on The Shining about 20, 23 years ago, and he says something similar to um, uh, someone that you cite in your article on The Shining, David Cook, in that the film is uh, – it, it could be interpreted as as, as in, uh, portraying the, the our genocide of the American Indian. Yeah, so and of course then there's this Scatman Crothers character who winds up uh uh being depicted in this in this typical uh post slavery fashion as as the black man who of course is uh, tuned into what white people need and and becomes for a moment a sort of rescuing heroic figure, a a line of action that Cooper just cuts short and eliminates in this Brutal murder that takes place when when he when he comes back after that long journey from Florida to mm-hmm. uh, rescue Danny. That's a, that's another interesting part of the book. But but certainly you're right about uh, the the cultural resonance. I mean those 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 are all kind of hints in the film. And uh, what I found interesting in looking at the uh, uh, different reviews was that the film. The film is so filled with um, uh, ambiguous forms of emptiness that there's a kind of interpretive uh, energy that critics find themselves falling subject to, you know, sort of fill the space and make the film be about something. I, I, I think I think ultimately it kind of resists that process, and it it, it generates so many different possibilities. For reading meaning into it, that uh, to to say it's about one thing or another is probably to reduce uh, Kubrick's art to uh, something much less than what he's actually uh, trying to present on the screen. Yeah. I don't think it's a film that that you know raises a social issue or such or or has a point. I think Kubrick's films in general don't have a point, or if they have a point, it's uh, very often a kind of uh, red herring. I mean, look mm-hmm. at the end of uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Could we say that film has a point? If you look at the scholarship devoted to that film, you have once again 
uh, a gazillion different interpretive moves to try to make that film mean one thing or another. And I think that that's just not what what Cooper permits you to do. I think that's wonderful. I think the ambiguity is wonderful. And I think it's great that a film like 2001 or, or Eyes Wide Shut, as I'm finding out, that many people can see the end of that film as, as very optimistic and hopeful, and others see it as, as his most nihilistic <laughs> statement. Yeah, I mean, it, right. it's wonderful. That's right. Yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, uh, that's that's one of the one of the things about 2001, which was so so innovative at the time, and and so and so kind of unexpected. I mean, we were we were used to Kubrick as a kind of a darkly comic satirist uh, with Doctor Strangelove and then Lolita, were films that are more traditionally Hollywoodian in in the sense that they can they can easily be forced into some sort of interpretive mold, having issued from from uh works that that do have uh points of one kind or another, even though I would suggest Lolita is very complicated in uh, what it says about Humbert's obsession. Uh Kubrick of course uh plays it all for these uh, dark laughs that he gets out of it, whereas uh, the novel is more serious. But then 2001 was just such a different kind of film. I remember seeing it as a young person, and there, there hadn't been an American film like this. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is like Antonioni or Fellini, an American modernist cinema where uh, there, there wasn't uh, an obvious point and where... Um, there was story and narrative and excitement and events and where it all didn't seem really to add up to anything. It seemed, in fact, deliberately to avoid adding up to anything. And mm-hmm. uh, that was a striking cultural moment. There was a huge reaction against that film. Pauline Kale fulminated against it. She was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was she was oh, a sort of... Yeah. Uh, more educated version of the Hollywood movie fan. And uh, she resented the European art cinema. And mm-hmm. she thought she thought uh, 2001 was just an appalling film. She, she went as far as to say it was, it was a, a terribly amateur. <laughs> yes, right. And she said the only reason that people are going to see it is because hippies think they can get somehow turned on or get a high from watching the succession of images at the end. She yeah, has a yeah. bitter, bitter review of it. Yeah, I think that's that's how many people within that particular niche of film cultures, so sort of uh, more sophisticated viewers who are really fans of Hollywood as opposed to the European art cinema, they were shocked by 2001. And yeah. yet... Uh, uh, from from more sophisticated reviewers, the film got much more sympathetic reception, much more positive reception. Yeah, I mean, I I I do love. Um, I, I think Pauline Kael is a beautiful writer, and and I I admire her her getting behind directors like De Palma and and so forth. But yeah. 
and she was so wrongheaded about 2001. I know, I know. It's so amazing. Wow. Well, it's uh, similar to another controversial film of that same period, which was Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, where there was mm-hmm. a kind of uh, incredible about face um, in the uh, uh, reviewing ranks when that film first came out. It's panned. It was awful, it was horrific, it was disgusting. And then when it became uh, popular and there was, it became a sort of cult classic, all these reviewers sort of went back and saw it again and changed their mind. And by the way, that's something that happened with 2001 as mm-hmm. well. A number mm-hmm. of well-known reviewers went back and saw it a second time. If memory serves, one of them was actually... Stanley Kaufman and went back and saw it a second time and had a more positive reaction. Uh, I think so too. I think, so. I, yeah. I, I think it was just too new for for a lot of the critics to you know when you talk about Bonnie and Clyde in two thousand one, it was too new and, and and that gives you faith yeah. that maybe maybe in those cases the public were was more perceptive than the uh, the academics than the than the professionals. <laughs> you know. I think so. Just just very much out in front. Of yeah. of uh, an, an appreciation for cinema that that didn't utilize all all the well worn conventions of Hollywood filmmaking and was actually marking out very different territory for American filmmakers and mm-hmm. breaking down the separation between the European art cinema and Hollywood. That's also true to degree. Uh, for Bonnie and Clyde, but I have to tell you that when I when I when I look at Bonnie and Clyde again these days, I'm 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 not so sure the film was all that all, all that revolutionary. Uh, although there are some interesting uh, riffs that Penn plays on a normal uh, photographic technique, but but the story is really. Uh, finally, very, very conventional. It goes right back to the gangster genre. It's like, uh, um, you know, White Heat from the late 40s. There's a kind of excessive, ultra-violent ending. Um, it's it's the young, energetic people against the establishment. But mm-hmm. watch it. Watching 2001, I, I think that that's a film... That that doesn't it has not aged in the same way. It's still as startling and complex as it as it was when it first came out. Even though the moment it kind of predicts has come and gone, and we realize that this sort of uh, trajectory of space exploration is never going to get uh, picked back up again, in some ways makes the film kind of irrelevant. And yet, at the same time, I, I think it's a film that that speaks uh, still very strongly in artistic terms, whereas I don't think that's really uh, characteristic of Bonnie and Clyde. Some of the films from the late 60s and early 70s that are part of what we call the Hollywood Renaissance still have still have a pop. Um, uh-huh. Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, for example. Uh, yes. Raging yeah. Bull by him as well, but but a lot of them uh, seem fairly dated. Uh, that would include almost any film by Hal Ashby, for example. He was thought to be the next best uh, uh, thing to a uh, uh, European style satirist, and I think his films seem 
seem fairly amateurish and they're very much dated these days. But, but mm. Kubrick, Kubrick, not at all. I think Kubrick's uh, big- a- any Kubrick film, even going back to the film noir from the fifties, like The Killing, Killer's Kiss, okay. and The Killing, yeah, 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 yeah. and yeah, you know, Fear and Desire, they are still just smashing films. Kubrick's Very interesting in. Kubrick's interesting in that his films are of their time and ahead of their time <laughs> all, all yes, at once. that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, that's a good way to describe it. It's interesting because some people refer to Bonnie and Clyde as as the unofficial first 70s film. Uh, and others actually go back to Lolita. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's, pr- it's probably the, the ambiguity of it. Uh, who are you supposed to root for? Root for, if anyone, in, in this film and the novel, and the remake that they did of it. Uh, yeah, it, it gives Humbert a backstory. It, it gives you a place to go on a, a, of why he would be attracted to a, a young teenage girl. Kubrick, right. which is all in the novel, which is all yeah. in the novel. So, yeah. so, so the Avian Line version, much more. See, this is why it gets back to what I said earlier about uh, three-dimensional characters. You don't really get them in Kubrick. He's not interested. In fact, you see it with uh, with with the way that Kubrick screws around with the narrative in Lolita and presents the killing first of Quilty, that that sort of subverts any sense in which this can be seen as a combination of self-hatred, guilt, a sense of responsibility, jealousy, all those emotions that that go into uh, make up this character. And, and once that happens in the line version, you get that long uh, sequence after the murder where, where Humbert is driving his car and you get wonderful acting from Jeremy Irons as he mm-hmm. displays all these complex, contradictory uh, feelings, emotions and memories and so on. And that that's just not the kind of filmmaking that that Kubrick is interesting. I think you you've actually picked a very good film to talk about because you can see what a more traditionally melodramatic, even the sort of high culture literary approach to filmmaking makes yeah. of the of the Nabokov novel. And Kubrick does something very, very different in that. He really does. And he seems yeah. to he seems to embrace uh, we talked about duality earlier. He seems to embrace that, especially in something like a like a Clockwork Orange. In fact, he uses he uses these devices that he kind of borrows from uh, uh, Truffaut uh, and the French New Wave directors in general. As for example, in the scene where where Alex picks up the two girls in the mall and goes back to his apartment and has sex with them, and uh, you get this uh, speeded up. Um, a photography that um, is very reminiscent of uh, similar sequences in Jules uh, et Jeanne, the true foe, and, and that and that serve to distance you from making any kind of judgment or, or preclude you from having any sort of deep um, uh, attachment to to any of the characters. They're all. They're all presented in a very distanced way, and I think another thing he does in that film to get that same effect is he is he presents you with constant tableau, 
where there are stationary characters who are uh, as as if they're posed for a painting or mm. a formal photograph, and that and that disconnects you from the sense of actors and character and so on. And yeah. it's very very interesting the way this happens because the the novel uh, is much more uh, invested in in a kind of uh, subjectivity of the main characters, first-person narrative, and um, uh, much you're, you're encouraged as a reader to identify more with Alex uh, than you are in the film, and to and to see it uh, in moral terms. I mean, part of part of what is going on there uh, with with what Anthony Burgess is doing is is to is to make you confront moral judgments about. Um, the psychological control as a kind of uh, 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 critique of B.F. Skinner and behaviorism and a, a critique of social democracy, the benevolent state that wants everyone to be a good citizen. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, there's a kind of evocation of um, a, a permissiveness gone wild of a society that seems to have no longer any kind of set of rules or codes, and so you have uh, you have the uh, erotic uh, comes to the surface in strange and bizarre ways, and in a typical Kubrick fashion, uh, takes shape in in these strange objects. For example, there's that that scene where where Alex murders the uh, woman in her apartment, and uh, he does it with this huge uh, sculpture of a penis. I mean, uh, it's 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 almost funny, um, and and typical of Kubrick to be distancing you from making any kind of moral judgment. I think Eyes Wide Shut is the same kind of film, where it's mm-hmm. very hard to to make a moral judgment. In fact, the characters I think are meant to leave you kind of disappointed and, and disconnected. Um, yeah, and and in general, I think that's what he does. Maybe in Paths of Glory is a somewhat different technique that's taken there. It's a more conventional film, and um, you are meant, I think, as uh, as a viewer, to feel more outrage at at what happens uh, with the collective punishment of the men, the regiment that uh, fails to take the German uh, fortifications. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. that is just a typical Hollywood film with a typical Hollywood hero, Kirk Douglas, uh, functioning as our representative in the story, and he's he's everything good. He's a part of the system. He's a courageous soldier. He's obedient to orders. And at the same time, he sees how the system he's serving is uh, rotten and corrupt, and he's thoroughly disillusioned at the end until we get that very melodramatic scene where where he passes by the uh, cafe and there's the uh, German girl singing her song inside it. It's a very tear-jerking, melodramatic moment, and, and that's it's just not typical of Kubrick to make a film like that. I, right. think, I think in many ways it's a kind of brilliant no, but it's not it's not his real style. You're right. You're right. But, yeah. uh, 
it, and what interests me also, uh, and this is a theme that he's returned to time and again, I don't think anyone's expressed it better than, than he does in Clockwork Orange, is that uh, we we cease. It seems to be saying that we we cease to be human when we're denied our free will. Yes. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think. I think. And then and and then what the film does is explore the discontents of a society in which the enlightenment values of the sovereign self. Uh, and the notion of that freedom from compulsion to be whatever um, uh, offer themselves as as problems to be solved complexly and paradoxically in some kind of humanist fashion, so that um, what what the state eventually um, winds up doing in order to serve Alex, very enlightenment idea that the state exists to serve us rather than the way around, uh, is by transforming him into someone who is uh, now the model good citizen. You get, you get something like the, the totalitarian idea of, of the individual as uh, eminently malleable uh, in response to state power and the image the state has uh, of, of the proper citizen. At the same time, there's, there's this notion of the, the dehumanization that goes on as part of the process. Mm-hmm. And, and there is no solution to that. I mean, the enlightenment notion that the, the benevolent state that gives us uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness um, has difficulty in dealing with people who say, screw you to that and pursue their own agendas to the harm of others. What do you do with people that do that? Do you, mm-hmm. uh, do, you, do, you, do you use the power of the state to compel them to be other than they are? But if you do that, isn't that in a sense destroying the very value that the post-enlightenment state is supposed to support? And, and of course, that's all in Burgess. But in, in many ways, I think it's more effectively presented in the film because... We are so disconnected from the characters, the film becomes more exploration of ideas. And right. I think that's one of the things that he's doing there. Yeah. It's the ideas that are offensive in that film, not so much the sex and violence. Right, it's, right, it's, right. It's the image of society and the trap that society finds itself in that I think is so, so interesting. Do you think he is... Uh, as he uses the government in Clockwork Orange, do you think he's uh, using technology in the same way in in, in two thousand one? I think I think there certainly is this this notion in in Kubrick. This is an Enlightenment notion as well of of the way in which rationality can be used to uh, change the material world. In, in ways that at least can be thought of as better serving human purposes. Mm-hmm. And there is the great irony of that in 2001 when you have the, um, uh, the primitive hominids having their, their fight. That bone that's used as a uh, weapon uh, becomes the spaceship. 
and and it, it, I guess that's that's got to be the greatest match cut. In I think so too. In, yes. in the way that that it crystallizes the entire development of the species of Homo sapiens and suggests that the origin of these two things is exactly the same kind of impulse. Mm-hmm. Um, impulse to violence, to control, and so on. And um, I think I think that 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 notion of science, that that critical notion of science, that 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 location of the urge to control uh, as as being not rational and benevolent necessarily, but as as connected to other perhaps more darker and more difficult uh, human qualities. You see that as well in uh, Clockwork Orange. I, I think mm-hmm. that is a similarity between those two films. And of course, what Kubrick does is, is explore the irony of this without without solving it at all. I mean, Alex suggests <laughs> at the end with his with his fantasies, um, and he's not reformed. He's not reformed as he is in the Burgess novel, of course. Um, Kubrick knew the Burgess novel in the uh, American edition, which left out chapter 25, mm-hmm. where where there's the reformation of Alex, and he turns into an ordinary model good citizen. Uh, that that ironic twist of of the moral questions that the film has been explored has been pouring into, uh, simply suggesting how they're solved. By the fact that Alex just gets older, um, mm-hmm. that that's left out by Kubrick. But that's because he did he didn't know that the book had actually been written with this ironic last chapter. I think that um, it would have made a more interesting film had he known the actual original version of the novel that Burgess had published. But do you think you think he would have shot that? Well, I think I think it would have been a temptation to uh, uh, see the irony in in that uh, uh, resolution, uh, quote unquote, that um, Burgess gives, uh, mm-hmm. rather than simply leave leave Alex in some sense on the horns of the dilemma. It would have been so uh, so anticlimactic to have all the questions about human nature and uh, the role of the state to kind of boil down to a question of, well, uh, young men who commit violence as, as when they're young often grow out of it, which is a kind of sociological fact um, that Burgess uses, and, and it provides such an interesting, ironic ending. Uh, yeah. you know, I think he would have, been, would have been tempted to make some use of that. Do you? Uh, my last question for you, because because you've been so generous with your with your time. Well, I, I enjoy think. talking to you so much. <laughs> you you're you're so knowledgeable about Kubrick. It's been a wonderful oh, conversation. Oh, no, no, no. I, you're, you're you're much smarter than I am about about this sort of thing. So I I rely on on you. But uh, what do you think his of his view on on humanity? Well, I think I think he has a uh, darkly uh, pre-enlightenment view. He's more Hobbes than Rousseau. He mm-hmm. sees uh, uh, the the ungoverned human um, being as someone um, likely to fall into the war of all against all. He sees us as 
as uh, necessarily corrupted or directed by by um, whatever is within us might call original sin or uh, the, the the tendency to follow uh, paths of behavior that uh, are are not to be described by the golden rule and, and are uh, inherently selfish self-concerned and perhaps even self-destructive. I think that that's, that's what you get, for example, in, in Shining. It's just a devastating uh, depiction of um, this particular way of understanding um, a human experience. And in 2001, the, uh, the whole idea of, of the spaceship and the technology and the desire to know, the epistemological urge and trajectory of the film winds up in uh, this blizzard of information at the end that doesn't add up to one particular thing. Yeah. So there is there is no resolution. There is no no way of understanding. Rationality uh, serves us only so far. I think. I think he's a kind of Swiftian satirist uh, with with ultimately a fairly grim view of human nature, sort of anti-humanist, if you like. Mm. It may be better to say anti-enlightenment. He just doesn't see us as driven by the better angels of our nature. He tends to see us as responding more to the other side. And, and that, that, that must be... That must be a, 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 one of the main reasons why he was so attracted to the phenomenon of war. Yeah, I think so because he sees it as so totally absurd mm-hmm. uh, and 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 pointless and uh, just an exercise in futility. And what what better war to pick than than the First World War with uh, contrasting. Um, uh, um, States of motion and stalemate, um, where 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 the attack moves forward, where where the camera movement up and down the trench before the attack suggests the possibility of action, and then the tracking scenes across the battlefield all mm. suggest a movement forward, and then it all winds up uh, moving backward, and nothing changes. I think that that. That's very Kubrickian, very, very uh, uh, bitter comment on the pointlessness of human action. No wonder the French got upset about this. I mean, it it, it, it picks them out um, as uh, being uh, uh, just uh, pointless practitioners of, of a way of waging war that uh, is defeated from the outset. There seems to be no point to anything. And, of mm-hmm. course, it, it it leaves out, and this is an interesting thing for me, watching this film, it leaves out the actual conditions of World War One, where the Germans are occupying the northern third of France. French can't leave them there. They have to do something, and yet what they do doesn't work, but you know, Coop doesn't want to see it quite that way. He mm-hmm. wants to abstract this particular offensive from the larger context of the war and to present it as a, in a sort of epitomizing way 
uh, as suggesting the failure of human intentions. And I, I think that that's that's one of the one of the one of the central points of his filmmaking is that yeah. what we want to have happen doesn't work. Look at the killing. I mean, it's a wonderful exercise in that. The caper film in which nothing goes right. And um, this elaborate formal structure that's created to to suggest uh, the way the racetrack robbery is supposed to take place, and yet and yet none of it works out, and everybody winds up uh, uh, dead in the end. I mean, this is sort of redoing of John Houston's Asphalt Jungle, mm-hmm. but uh, but a much uh, less uh, humanistically oriented version of that with. Uh, with this narrator uh, presenting the different uh, time segments of the film, a kind of detached uh, uh, vision of human possibilities that all go down to nothing. I just think yeah. it's a marvelous film. And Sterling Hayden was in Asphalt Jungle as well, wasn't he? Yes, so, yes he was. So yeah. they have that in common. <laughs> that will come. Uh, man, I... I you know, talking about Kubrick, I sure, I sure regret that we aren't going to get any more Kubrick films. I mean, I know, and it's it's, it's too bad that that he didn't make any more. Yeah, um, you know, relatively small number of films, but they're Do all so interesting. They they are, yeah. I mean, you know, I think Scorsese said one of Kubrick's films is worth ten of <laughs> everyone else's. So what what more I mean, do you that's want? That's a good point, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you see anyone that uh, that carries on his tradition? No, I don't think so. I mean, no one, no one that I know among um, contemporary directors, with the possible exception of Steven Spielberg, is as interested in the meticulous planning and pre-production work necessary to make the kind of film that Kubrick did because, of course, mm-hmm. what what lies behind these films is an elaborate, time-consuming, painstaking process of planning and design that leaves nothing to chance. I mean, he's the opposite of, of directors like Robert Altman who yeah, yeah. put characters in a set and say, go ahead, make up your own dialogue. I mean, it is the case just to correct this a little bit, that he did sometimes allow actors to improvise. Um, the uh, um, uh, way that Malcolm McDowell in, in Clockwork Orange um, at least reports being able to improvise some of what he did in, in creating the uh, character in that film. But for the most part, um, he has a kind of Hitchcockian uh, approach to meticulous preparation where where the creative act is really the planning itself rather than the actual production of the film, which must always have seemed somewhat anticlimactic in the yeah. same way that it did for Hitchcock, who reports, of course, conventionally always being bored on the set because um, he'd already, he already knows how it's going to turn out, and so there's no sense of artistic discovery or... Uh, creativity uh, going on or synergy with performers and so on. He thought all of that was uh, sort of pointless. I think there's there's a lot of that sort of mentality 
in in Kubrick as well. Not mm-hmm. really an actor's director in the sense that he is interested in creating performances. He's interested more in exploiting bodies. That that's a that's a different sort of thing. Um, you, and uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, you you brought up Spielberg, and I, I promise I'll yeah. let you go after this. But sure. one one film that we haven't discussed very much uh, for the series is AI. And uh, and you think of Spielberg sure. and Kubrick oh. as kind of being polar opposites in in some ways, in that Spielberg is is very good with the the warm suburban uh you know touchy feely films and <laughs> kubrick is not but i find that this that ai is just the most fascinating hybrid of spielberg kubrick i know wasn't it interesting that spielberg took on that project mm-hmm. i mean that that is so so fascinating because it's such a kubrick project it would have been a fascinating sequel to 2001 i mean it is in many ways uh, a a, uh, a riff on exploration of identity and self that you see at the end of 2001. So, yes, there is an interesting connection there. But I have to say, that's a kind of outlier for for Spielberg. I mean, it's not his typical kind of film. What, right. I, what I find similar between Spielberg and Kubrick is this incredible energy and interest in uh, pre-production planning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they are so obsessed with uh, technique and uh, casting and set design. And, of course, once uh, once CGI became possible, uh, it seemed kind of inevitable that Spielberg would use that because it's just another technical resource that you could exploit to control what it is you're doing. And I think there are, are, are similar kinds of uh, impulses in the two filmmakers uh, mm-hmm. that they have. They have that personality trait in common. But it is not the case, I think, that Spielberg is, is a director with the same uh, depth of vision and uh, uh, interest in exploring artistic form that you see in Kubrick. Kubrick's only real comp for that would have to be Antonioni. I mean, there, uh-huh. there is no, no other director who who really is able to do that with him. He's I think so, kind too. Of one of a kind. I mean, really interesting. And who would have known that the, the guy who was making film noirs in the early 1950s would turn into this fascinating character? Remarkable. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there did say, when you think of the Kubrick canon, I mean... Yeah. It, some people started at uh, Strange Love, but everyone everyone uh, acknowledges 2001 on as as a kind of that's when the mythic Kubrick uh, started yeah. to take shape. Yeah. It was so surprising when that happened. I uh-huh. mean that that was Kubrick making that film. I mean, you know, uh, for people at the time, you're too young to have been to have been around them, but for people at the time, I mean, he was he was the uh, he was the black comedian of Lolita and uh, Strange Love. What, what what was this film? I mean, mm. epic film at a mm. time when Hollywood wasn't wasn't making epic films, making epic musicals, not making epic films. 